Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership drummer, Jim Wright the younger brother of famed former Parliament Funkadelic and Parlet singer Debbie Wright. Growing up immersed in the world of P-Funk, he was mentored by and performed with legendary band members. He was Parlet's original leader and appeared on records by that group, as well as solo projects by Bernie Worrell and George Clinton. Jim Wright, who became who came to be known as J-double-U, that's J-A-Y-D-O-U-B-L-E-Y-O-U, also worked as a sessions player for United Sounds recording studio owner, Don Davis. He's released several very funky albums under his own name and remains musically active today. Jim, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very well, thank you. So good to have you today. Likewise. Glad to be here. And where is here for you right now? I'm in uh, Georgia, North Georgia, uh, Swanee, Georgia, a little town called Swanee. All right. And that's uh, your your residence now? That's my residence. I've been here uh, going on a little bit. Well, I've been at this particular home for about 17 years, but I've been in Georgia going over 30. Okay. So I'm in the neighboring state, North Carolina, pretty close. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> 
The South rises again. <laughs> there you go, baby. <laughs> so, where, and where are you from originally? I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's the bedrock right there of the funk and the soul for sure. Oh, without a doubt, brother, without a doubt. Nice. I enjoyed a lot of the early Motown reviews. I was able to experience some Motown reviews at the age of nine and 10. And that was a remarkable experience that I can close my eyes and still see it to this day. A young David Ruffin, a young Diana Ross, a sharp young Marvin Gaye. <laughs> yes. Well, it almost seems like you would have to uh, try not to get music into your blood if you came from that area. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that would be kind of hard, too. Wow. That would be difficult to do. Yeah. So what was it like for you uh, growing up uh, in general, uh, Jim, you know, and what uh, drove you towards drums? And, and what was it like with your, your big sister having that talent? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, it started... Of course, living in Detroit, you hear Motown, you kind of like one of the first cities to hear the new songs from Motown. Then you had James Brown, which everyone loved James Brown. And music was always in the family. My mom's, she did music uh, when she was younger, gospel on the road with my granddad. And uh, Deb started doing sessions where she would sing around the house all the time. And we would dance around the house all the time. And eventually, uh, she was at high school. It was high school, Murray Wright High School. And the 20 grand was across the street from the high school. The 20 grand had a restaurant, a bar, also a motel. So some of the kids would go to the restaurant for lunch. And so just happened, just uh, one day, Deb was singing along with the radio and Grady, Fuzzy, and Ray walked in and they heard her singing. And so they had asked her, would she like to do a session? Which she didn't know what a session was at the time. She's like 14, 15. And she said, sure. But she thought a session was just go on the corner and start singing. <laughs> and so she asked my mom, she said, uh, you ever heard of this group called Parliament? And my mom said, yes, they did. Uh, I want to testify. And so that started us being involved with uh, Parliament because she started doing sessions at the age of 15. And from there, the, uh, but before that, she was married to a brother named Zachary Slater, Zachary Frazier. Zachary played with chairman of the board, did a lot of sessions in Detroit. So he would bring his drum set over to the house. So I would get to see him play, you know, stand right behind him and see the different coordination and how magnificent it was to see a drummer with this crazy coordination, and I was hooked by then. Yeah, by then it was like, I want some drums. And, but it took me a little while to get a, get my first kit. But that's how it all started, for the love of it. What, what year was it that uh, Debbie got discovered, basically, by the guys in Parliament? 
Uh, that had to be, had to be like 67, 68, 69. Definitely oh. before the 70s. Yeah, she was doing sessions early. So, I mean, that was uh, Funkadelic years. I mean, they didn't do yeah, Parliament again until later. Yeah, Right, right. Well, where they started off with Parliament, they had a hit, I Want to Testify. And so George decided we're just like any other group with suits on. So he went the acid route, started dressing funky, and that's when Funkadelic was started. And once Funkadelic got out there a little more, they combined both names, Parliament Funkadelic. So, and what was the age difference with you and The Jeff? age difference? Uh, with me, I, my sister is four years older than me. Okay. So you're like 12. She's like 16. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, was, was she into, you know, uh, adventurous, let's say music at that, at that point, you know, because obviously what Funkadelic was doing was beyond, you know, what was on a lot of the radio stations at the time. Well, she always sung top 40. She always done gigs around the city. You know, from singing Gladys Knight and the Pips, uh, songs of that nature, Honeycomb, uh, Sarah Vaughn. And she was able to adapt because of the energy that she has. And of course, she was a crazy about George. So that, that alone, just being inspired by George. And then she was a great singer. She kind of set the bar for a lot of the background singers. She had a very, very strong voice. I mean, you could hear her distinctively in all of the uh, music she recorded on. And who in the uh, funk mob did you first get exposed to? Who did you first meet? I first met Bernie Morrell and Ray Davis. She had invited them over to the house for dinner. And those are the first two guys I met. And me and Bernie, we got cool real quick. And since Bernie was with George all of the time, <clears throat> that's how I ended up meeting George because George didn't make a move without Bernie. There you go. <laughs> when did you first get to hear any of them play? Oh, I heard them play early. I used to be at some of the sessions because they used to come by the house and so I would ask, can I ride to go to the sessions when they were cutting a lot, like Tales of Funkadelic, uh, a lot of albums before Chocolate City, before The Mothership. And they were working, by Detroit being a small city, they would work, well, Ohio Players was with Westbound too. So I would see Junie and I would just ask Bernie, Hey man, can I go to the sessions with y'all? So I was able to see Tiki play. I was able to see Eddie lay down tracks. And the more I saw in the studio, the more I was hooked on making this my dream to be able to make a living as in the music industry. Wow. That's just amazing being that age and getting exposed to, you know, what I consider musical geniuses. So. Yeah, it was it, at the time it was just fun, cool cats, 
lot of music and I was able to see exactly how they put music together in the studio. And that was enlightening, you know, in terms of, of the way different producers produce. All producers produce differently. And so I was able to see how Junie would produce. I was able to see how George produced. I was able to see how Boosie produced. I was able to see how Don Davis produced. I was able to see how Stevie Wonder produced. So I was able to see different uh, uh, guys, different artists, different producers put their thing together the way they put it together and everyone ends up on the same role, which you wanted a hit record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to get people moving in a lot of cases. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Definitely. When did you first meet George? What do you remember that experience? And not George, I could have met George. George could have came by the mom's house and he was with Bernie, of course, or he could have came with Deb to be introduced to the moms. But I do remember making him breakfast. <laughs> I was about 14, 13. When I, well, when I first met him, I met him through Bernie when they were at the studio. It was a, 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 a motel called the University Motel right across the street from United Sounds. So I met George shortly after I met Bernie and Ray because Deb was doing sessions and me being a little brother and I'm hanging with Bernie and Ray. So I met George shortly after I met Bernie and the rest of the cast. But at the same time, he was elusive most of the time, him being the producer. <laughs> you know, where's George? Where's George? We wait on Jordan and he show up because he was producer you know, um, um, producing all the sessions. So is it just you and Deb? Did you have other siblings? Yes, I got two more sisters, a, a, a two younger sisters. Deb was the oldest sister. And I have a older brother, unfortunately passed away this year. But yeah, oh, sorry to hear it that. was five minutes all together. Were there any other, you know, teens that were siblings or relatives of other members of the funk mob at that time that were kind of hanging around? Not really, because they were recording in Detroit and most of the guys were from Jersey or from New York or from Ohio. So a lot of them, very few lived in Detroit. So a lot of their families were in their own hometown. Mm -hmm. because they were basically recording in Detroit most of the time. Yeah. And yeah. I would meet, I met Barbarella when she was little, you know, George would bring Barbarella around the house. His daughter, Barbarella, uh, George Jr., Tracy. Uh, uh, I would see them, you know, what Tracy hung out a lot because Tracy is very musical. Tracy always been a little genius. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and so you started um, trying to emulate some of what they were doing, right? So uh, tell, uh, tell us no, a little bit how, how that came along. No, I wasn't really. I was basically, I dug the music and I was into the drums. And at that time, 
I was into trying to get as many sessions as I can get, you know, because United Sounds, George was not the only one recording there. You had a whole lot of different people recording there. Michael Walden, Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight, uh, and the list goes on. So you were really trying to establish yourself as a session drummer at that particular time in the, in the mid-70s and early 80s until, the, you know, the drum machine came out. Mm-hmm. So you were basically, I was basically just learning, just, just soaking it all up and observing and preparing to be ready when it was time, my time to get a chance to play. So did you pick up pointers from like Tiki or? Oh, like that? yeah, I picked, I got my first drum set, sticks from Tiki. Tyrone taught me a lot of rudiments, Tyrone Lampkin. He taught me all about the pair of diddles, flammer diddles, single pair diddle, double pair diddle. And, and he taught me structure in terms of, say, when you're doing a track and you do a pickup, say you're doing a four, four, um, Pop, um, pop, and you do a pickup, right? You just keep your foot going, um, pop, boom. That helps you keep the time. You know how some drummers do a pickup and they miss that one when they come back or they get lost. Uh, they get lost coming back into the group. But Tyrone taught me a lot. Zachary Slater taught me a lot. Robin Russell taught me a lot, which Robin Russell was with Lil Richard, uh, New, New Birth, yeah. Johnny Guitar Watson. He taught me a lot. We were really close. We were like brothers. Um, Rest in peace for him last yeah, year. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, singing-wise, I mean, I didn't really start singing until later, later, because there were so many great singers in the group from Gary to Glenn, Fuzzy, Calvin. And that alone, man, is, is, is killer vocals right there, brother. <laughs> right? So, yeah, I, I was influenced by pretty much all of them in different ways. What, what was Don Davis like? Great guy. Don Davis was a great guy businessman, uh, uh, charming, no-nonsense kind of a guy, straight to the point. And the story with Don, how I hooked up with Don after the crazy Parlette debacle, uh, I laid out for about two months. Then I said, well, listen, let me go get with Don because he owns the studio. And he's working just as much as anybody else because Don produced, of course, Dramatics, Enchantment, David Ruffin, Billy Davis, Marilyn McCool, and his, his big hit maker was Johnny Taylor. And so Don, I will call Don. I will call him every day, you know. And, and one day I'm at the mom's house and the phone rings and it's Don. He said, when I speak to Jim Wright, I said, speaking. He said, Jim Wright, I'm getting tired of coming to my office, man. And all I see is pink slips. Jim Wright call. Jim Wright call. Jim Wright call. 
Jim Wright called. That's a learning persistence. What do you want, Jim Wright? <laughs> I said, well, Don, listen, man, I'm making records, baby. Give me a chance. He said, okay. He gave me, uh, he tried to hook me up with Eli Fontaine at first. Eli Fontaine, I don't know if you're familiar with Eli. Eli did a lot of, well, actually he played saxophone on the Parlette Pleasure Principle album, but he worked with Marvin Gaye. So at the time I talked to Eli, Eli was very impatient with me. And at that particular time, I wasn't ready for no more drama. So I decided not to go to the meeting. So Don called me the next day. He said, uh, why didn't you show up? I said, I didn't like the way Eli was talking to me. And so he understood and he sent me to Brian Spears. Brian Spears was one of his partners that handled helped handle the publishing, helped organize the sessions, helped organize the musicians. He had several jobs. So I went to see Brian over at Grooveville and I had a, a bass line on tape and I played the bass line and I sung the lyrics with the bass line. And that's how I got in the studio, the demo studio with Don through Brian Spears. And, but Don is a great guy. He'd give you, he'd give everyone a chance if you had enough confidence in yourself. And he thought it was something about you. He would at least give you a chance and throw you in the demo studio, which demo studio was Grooseville Productions. That was a whole nother building from United Sounds. So you would start over at Grooseville. And if you're lucky enough, you'll make it to United Sounds. <laughs> like minor leagues. Exactly. <laughs> hey, but Don is a great, hey, he's, he was good to me, man. I learned a lot from him. Actually, that's where I learned publishing, uh, production, because with George, I was just a musician. With Don, I ended up signing a producer contract, an artist contract, and a songwriter's contract. And that's where I learned about publishing and royalties of being able to keep getting money without having to go on the road. And that's, and once I decided to leave Don back in the mid eighties, I just said to myself, I'm gonna put my own records out, man. I don't know what, you know, maybe I didn't know any better, <laughs> but it felt, you know, I just wanted to have control of my own destiny. And I felt the experiences that I was having in the industry and all of them were not good. The music was great, but just dealing with the different personalities and different people, it, I just felt better. I'm going to put my own records out even though it might have been crazy at the time, but I guess I was ahead of the curve considering where we are now. Well, uh, we'll talk more about some of that in a few minutes, but I want to go back and get a little more detail also on the, uh, you know, the P-Funk experience. So when did you first get a chance to actually play with anyone in that group? Fuzzy gave me my first shot. Fuzzy Haskin. 
I was down at United Sounds, actually, me and Shirley, because Shirley was my girl at the time. So me and Shirley, we at the studio, and Buzzy is getting ready to cut some new music because he had his own deal with Westbound as a solo artist. And normally, Fuzzy plays drums on his own songs. But by me knowing him for a while and grew up in that environment, I said, Fuzzy, let me get a shot, man. Let me get a shot. He said, okay, Jim. But you know you got it. If you don't do it right, you know I got to pull you. I say, hey, man, I got this. I got this. And the first session, Glenn Goins was on guitar. Gary Scheider was on guitar. Boogie Musan was on bass. And when they saw me sit behind the trap, <laughs> they gave you that camera two look when the actor looked at the audience like, what? <laughs> and so it went well. I nailed it in the first take. Uh, it went so well. I ended up doing two more songs that night. I would do a track. Uh, Jim Biddy, I think Jim Biddy was the engineer at the time. Jim Biddy or either Greg Ward. Then mixed for a while. <laughs> then they'll call me back for the next track. But that was my first major session at United Sounds due to Fuzzy Haskins. And so are you actually, that was a, a whole nother thing, album? Yeah, that was a whole nother, it was a fuzzy solo album. And yeah. unfortunately, I can't even remember the songs I played on. I know that, I think that one had Which Way Do I Disco on it was a pretty good track. Um, yeah, that record was hard to find for a while, you know? Yeah, and I, I, I know I've tried to, catch up with Fuzzy, I haven't been able to catch him to see exactly what songs I did play on. But a few of them I can tell how I sound. And I try to guess maybe that was it, maybe that was it, but I won't know for sure until I talk to Fuzzy. So from there, uh, what happened? I mean, I know you did some playing with well, Bernie and things there, like that. From there, George ended up calling me one night and me and Skeet ended up doing at least seven to 10 tracks. We had a, we had a long night and a lot of those tracks ended up on Parlette's album, Bernie Morrell's album. And, uh, I think one nation under groove cause I'm on, uh, who says a funk band can't play rock. I'm on that track. And then the other few tracks went on Bernie's album and went on Parlette's album. So I know we uh, spoke a little bit about it, but um, Parlette, yeah. why don't you tell us more about that story, you know, uh, how it got going and your role in that? Well, how it got going, uh, well, Deb and Jeanette, well, first of all, Deb knew the group a long time and she was doing a whole lot of sessions. Now I had a group called Stiheen, uh, me and a brother named Kevin Carter, one of the Carter brothers. We had a group called Stiaheen. And Jeanette, I met Jeanette's sister at high school named Joanne. And I was visiting Joanne 
one day and I met Jeanette and she told me Jeanette sings. And I had a group, so we auditioned Jeanette. We liked the way she sounded and that's how she met Debbie because we were rehearsing at my mom's house and Deb was there. So moving forward, I end up leaving the group Stihing. I wasn't satisfied. So they had to find a new place to rehearse. Some of them didn't really like that. You know how that can go. So from there, me and Deb, we've always had relationships with George and, and the band. We always at the studio. So she told Jeanette, Jeanette was working with a group called The Last Days in Detroit, the time when most females wanted to sound like Chaka Khan. And so she built a relationship with Deb over, I say, three months. And Deb promised her, if I can help you, I will. So it was one day. Uh, George called Deb down to a session and Jeanette just happened to be over Deb's house at the time. So they end up catching a cab down to United Sounds and I met him at United Sounds. So this is when the mothership was doing well. The mothership, everything is building, building, building. So Deb, we in Studio A and Deb, and matter of fact, I don't, this is the first time Jeanette met George. And quite frankly, I don't even think she knew who Parliament Funkadelic was <laughs> because we were young. She was like 18 or 19. And, and so Deb is really, really fired up. Like, dude, I need some work. I need some work, George. What's going on? What's going on? And so George, he hit the little 420, looked up at the sky. Now, this is like a Tuesday. He said, can you make it to rehearsal Sunday in New York? Deb said, what you say? He said, can you make it to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw you on the gig. Can you make it to rehearsal Sunday in New York? She was like, heck yeah. And so Jeanette got a look on her face like, what just happened? And so obviously Deb felt that. And she told Jeanette, I'll look out for you if I can. So she looked at George and said, do you need another girl? And George didn't know Jeanette. Jeanette didn't know George. And all he said to Deb, can she hang? She never auditioned. George never heard her sing. He strictly took Deb's word for it that she can hang. Okay. So moving forward a little more. That Sunday, Deb went to rehearsal. Jeanette didn't make the flight. She chose to go do a gig with the last days, the guys she was working with, the local band. So the local band was telling her, you taking a step down to go sing background with this national group when you're singing lead with us. So it confused Jeanette. It confused her, I understood. So I found out that Monday or Tuesday, she didn't make the flight. Either she called me or I called her and she was very upset, very confused. And I said, well, listen, call the office in LA. This is in Detroit at the time. 
I said, call off and see if your ticket is still there. Her ticket was still there. I got my mom's car, drove Jeanette around to get her little, you know, toiletries or whatever you get when you travel. Took her to the airport, Metro Airport. This is when we were able to walk people to the gate. <laughs> Walked her to the gate, saw her get on the airplane. Okay, now they were on tour for two years before Parlette was conceived, Deb and Jeanette. And so once it was decided to get a girl group, they started recording Deb first. And I don't think uh, they were looking for a third girl. And from what Deb told me, because she had just seen Malia in LA and her and Malia grew up together. Malia is pretty much from Detroit as well. So they kind of grew up together. And they were trying to figure out a third girl. And from what Deb said to me, George said, well, what about Malia? She was like, yeah, Malia is cool. And I don't think Jeanette knew Malia was coming because Deb laid her tracks first on Pleasure Principle. Jeanette wasn't really matured enough yet to compliment Deb at that time. Malia was. So that kind of upset Jeanette that this woman or this girl I don't even know comes in and get more stuff on this record than I'm getting, pretty much upset. So once that happened and once the record was done, we did the a little, a little promo party in Detroit. And within weeks later, something happened to Deb. Just flipped and she wasn't the same after that so when it was time for Parlette to go on the road we were still rehearsing I put the band together I called what well, George he, he, he what well, Donnie Donnie right Donnie came to LA with Mally came to Detroit with Mally a bass player so Donnie had the gig so me and Donnie was in the room talking to George he said, listen, get a, get a band together, which I knew all the cats in Detroit. And he said, nah, it's about the girls. It's not about the band. Okay, I get that. So that's when I hired Gordon Carlton, Jerome Ali, Ernesto Wilson, Janet Carlton. Who else? Uh, myself. I think that was it. And then Donnie was playing bass. Right. And so we rehearsed, we rehearsed. And when it was obvious Deb wasn't going to be able to do it, they were still going to let her do her solo album. But she wasn't right. So we rehearsing. And I mean, Shirley, we still hanging out. Shirley is at all the rehearsals. So she's seeing the auditions. They never really would have been satisfied with any girl. Right. They would have meaning Jeanette and Malia would have been happy on stage with a cardboard cutout. <laughs> so we're auditioning girls and they never satisfy. So it's one day we're sitting. Uh, Shirley is there. So Shirley and Malia is at the bar 
at my mom's house. So Malia called me over and I guess Shirley told her that she sings. And she asked me, how would I feel if my girl got in a group with them? Now they never heard Shirley sing, but Shirley had to look. And plus they were ready to get on the road. They, it, it was crazy, Scott. So I'm like, well, opportunity, I don't have no problem with that. And we changed rehearsal spots. We went over Mal's house to rehearse, Mal's mom's house. And things were moving fast, moving real fast. And keep in mind, none of the girls really knew each other. And in my opinion, Malia and Jeanette didn't even want another girl, but they needed another girl to get on the road. And Shirley just happened to have that look. But as far as they were concerned and, and, and credit to Shirley, cause she came in in a rough situation and being a beautiful lady, she walk in the room, you gonna look at it. Some other girls might not like that, right? <laughs> so she was a head stop. And like I said, and at that particular time, Mr. Melody Man was considered the hit song on Parlette's album. That, that was the song that everybody liked, which Deb did that song. So by Deb not being there, they still wanted to put that song on the show. So now it's a battle between Jeanette and Malia, who's gonna sing it. Now, in my opinion, Mal is the best choice because she she could do it. And we went on the road, man. Four gigs. I get back. They tell me I'm fired. And, and that was that. They said that, and, and all of it was BS because years later I found out the truth. Basically, It wasn't nice people, man. You know, the artists were not nice. You know, too desperate to want to be a star. You know, it's just like the movies, man. We'll do anything to try to be a star, man. Walk over whoever you got to walk over. Finagle whoever you have to finagle. No love at all. Just I'm going to step over whoever I got to step over to get where I think I want to be. And after that, once Deb left, it was really over because that's what Parlette, he did Parlette. She was the main one, which Mal would eventually get her own album as well because that was the deal they promised her as well. But it, it just fell apart. And after they fired me, I just disappeared. And the next time they saw me, I was working with Don. Wow, thank you for going through that, Jim. I appreciate it. I hope it I hope it wasn't too much. I hope it was short no, no. and sweet. <laughs> no, I hey, I appreciate the detail for sure. Um who and who uh, ended up replacing you in drums for Parlet? Oh, Gordon Carlton cousin, Kenny Carlton. Hmm. Yeah, they brought him in real quick. It, it was, you know, it was it was an experience. It was a hurtful experience. But at the same time, for me, it was a blessing in disguise. So at the show, were you playing like, uh, I love Cookie Jar, you know, that's a jam. 
Were you playing tracks like that? Oh yeah, I played on I played Cookie Jar, Pleasure Principle, and I think one more. I think I played either three or four tracks on Parlette. I played three or four on Bernie's. I know I played all the War in the World, uh, Happiness. I can't remember the name, but I played on about three of those tracks. Can you give us any more detail about what went down with Deb? Was it was it substance related or what happened? It's 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 hard to say. It's it's you know everybody was doing substance and she can handle her stuff, man, like the best of us. But it's so much jealousy, man. And I'm going to just be honest, man. Jeanette Washington Perk, she's just not a nice person. And she's a desperate person. Now, when they were on the road for two years, Jeanette would come to my mom's house and Deb was like her big sister. So they this close all the time. But everything changed when Jeanette didn't do as much as she thought she was supposed to do on the first album. She didn't realize the politics that the producer picks the singer. You know, they pick the person who they think is going to sell the records. She was too young to understand that. And from there, she just went on the dark side as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. And, and, and she wanted to be the lead singer in Parlet. And I think she accomplished that after Deb left and after Malik left. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah. What, what was it? When you when you were in the studio, uh, were you there uh, at, at some times when uh, George was actually producing and directing? Yeah, yeah. And what what was it? What was that like? What was he like in the studio? From what you saw, he was cool. He was busy putting the project together, and and everybody was cool. While and if Jeanette was there, she was around pouting, you know, pouting, bad vibration because she's not doing enough singing. Because keep in mind, remember when she left the last days. They told her, you a lead singer. Why would you go sing background? So she felt as though she should have been doing more lead, which, yeah, but you're not ready yet for that. You know, George feels as though you're not ready for that. And, and, and with recordings, you don't get favors. It's like whoever get the job done, that's who got the job. We, we're not in the business of, of letting you do it, even if it's my own son. If you're not going to do it right, dude, you can't do the job. You know, and so she didn't understand that. And and other than that, the recordings went well. Hmm. I mean, George didn't let really nothing bother him. You know, he, he was like the kind of cat he is. He's like, eventually it'll blow over. But he stayed focused on the matter at hand. And he'll let you work it out on your own. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.